Good morning and welcome to another episode of Kings and Queens, the podcast where we read, watch, play, and discuss history's favorite scream queens and literary kings of horror. I am your host, Nat, and today we will be diving into Chapter 5 of Stephen King's Holly. Last week, we got really into the Bonnie Doll case, a missing persons case, initially thought to be a child. She's obviously mid-20s, and we don't know what's happened to her. We for sure have at least two victims of the academic couple, the Harrises, of abducting, kidnapping, whatever you want to call it. If you have not already, I highly recommend going back to the beginning and reading through all of the previous chapters with us just to get caught up. As a reminder, when you hear this sound, that means I've stopped reading from the text and am instead discussing thoughts, interpretation, things like that. When the sound replays, that means the mic is back to the author. Without further ado, let's begin Chapter 5 of Holly. Chapter 5, November 22nd through 25th, 2018. Part 1, page 49. M doesn't like this one. Not that she liked Carrie Dressler, and she loathed Castro, the spick maricon. This girl, though, this Ellen Craslow, is different from either of them. Because she's female? M doesn't believe it. I was not familiar with that spick term, so it does appear to be a contemptuous term for Hispanic people, uh, so potentially a slur. Motive is still unclear uh, for Jorge Castro whether it was nationality versus um, sexuality. She descends the stairs to the basement, carrying the tray in front of her. On it is a pound and a half of liver, uncooked and swimming in its own juices. Price at Kroger, 322. Meat is so expensive now, and the last piece was wasted. She came down and found it, crawling with maggots and flies. How they got into this sealed room, and so quickly, is beyond her. Even the crack at the foot of the door leading to the kitchen has been sealed. Now, I'm not certain, but I'm pretty sure that that door that she's talking about is where the basement leads up to their house. Possibly an escape route for the victims? The girl is standing at the bars of the cell. She's tall, with skin the color of cocoa. Her hair is neat and short and dark. From the foot of the stairs, Em could almost believe it's a bathing cap. When she comes closer, she can see that Ellen's lips are cracked and sore-looking in places. But she doesn't cry or beg. She's done neither, so far at least. Em takes the plate of liver from the tray and places it on the concrete. She drops to one knee to do this rather than bending. Her sciatica is bad, but bad she can take. When it screams, though, when it makes every step agony, that is a different matter. She takes the broom and pushes the plate towards the cell. The red liquid sloshes, and as she has done before, Ellen Craslow blocks the pass-through with the side of her foot. So sciatica, to this extent, definitely can be painful and inhibiting in terms of motion. Uh, I think we have a confirmed health concern for at least one of the Harrises, for Emily with the sciatica. Is that the source for this wheelchair that they're using to con people into helping them? I've told you I'm a vegan. You don't seem to listen. M feels an urge to poke her with the broom handle and quelts it. Not just because the girl might catch hold of it either. She must not show emotion. Like Castro and Dressler, this is a caged animal. Livestock. Poking livestock is childish. Being angry with it is childish. What you do with an animal is train it. 
And again, here we are comparing human beings to animals. We are making them less than, both cognitively, emotionally, all of it. Um, and the training that she mentions, is that the end goal for these abductees? Train them to what? I mean, Emily even goes so far as to call her abductees it instead of he or she. Ellen refused the protein shake, too. She drank both of the small bottles of water that were in the cage when she woke up, the first all at once. She made the second one last, but both are gone now. From the pocket of her apron, Em takes another. When you eat your meat, Ellen, you can have this. Your body doesn't care that you're a vegan. It needs to eat. She holds the bottle out, displaying it. And it needs to drink. Well, so now we know that she doesn't want her abductees dead. Um, and we don't currently know the status of Jorge Castro, but the fact that they seem to only have the one cage kind of implies that he might not be with us anymore. Ellen says nothing, only stands looking at M with her hands loosely gripping the bars and her foot blocking the pass-through. That gaze is unnerving. M doesn't want to feel unnerved, but tells herself that she'd feel the same way if she were at the zoo and locked eyes with a tiger. Part of me wonders if they're dehumanizing their victims in order to cope with the atrocities that they're doing. I'll leave the food, shall I? When I come back and the plate is clean, juice too, you can have the water. No reply, and animal or no animal, Professor Emily Harris, Emerita, realizes she's angry after all. No, furious. Castro ate. Dressler ate. Eventually, Ellen will eat too. She won't be able to help herself. M turns away and starts for the stairs. The girl says, it's horrible, isn't it? M turns back, startled. When people won't do what you want, it's horrible, isn't it? For you, I mean. And the girl actually smiles. Bitch, Emily thinks. And then what she would have never in a billion years allowed herself to say except in her diary, stubborn black bitch. Racism is definitely part of Emily Harris's problem. M says, gently, it's Thanksgiving, Ellen. Give thanks and eat. Bring me a salad, Ellen says. No dressing. That I will eat. The nerve, M thinks, as if I were a serving girl, as if I were her lady's maid. She does something that she will later regret because it gives away too much of herself. She takes the bottle of water from her apron pocket, raises it to her lips, and drinks. Then she pours the rest out over the railing. The girl says nothing. So other than, you know, the classic trope of the floor is more deserving of this water than you as a human being, um, I don't fully understand what else M is revealing of herself, um, other than maybe spite or lack of impulse control, maybe. Chapter 5, Part 2, Page 51. A day later, Professor Rodney Harris, Life Sciences, Emeritus, stands in front of the cell, cogitating. Thank you, Stephen King, for constantly expanding my vocabulary. I did look it up, and cogitating means to think deeply, meditate, and reflect. Ellen Craslow looks back at him, calm, or so she seems. There are a couple of blisters on her lips now, there are pimples on her forehead, and the smooth cocoa loveliness of her skin has turned ashy. But her eyes, a startling green, are brilliant in their deepening sockets. 
classic. Her body is failing her before her mind is. Roddy is a respected biologist and nutritionist. Before his retirement, he was a teacher, sometimes revered and more often feared by his students. A bibliography of his published work would fill a dozen pages, and he still keeps up a lively correspondence in various journals with his peers. That he considers himself first among those peers does not strike him as conceited. As someone wise once said, it ain't bragging if it's true. Now, I did look up that old adage because I had not heard it before, and I do still think that Roddy Harris is being at least a little bit narcissistic here, but the statement, it ain't bragging if it's true, has been attributed to many, many men, many different iterations of the saying, so I really can't tie it down to anyone in particular. He's not angry at this girl the way M is. She says she isn't, but they have been married for over 50 years, and he knows her better than she knows herself. But Ellen certainly perplexes him. She must have been disoriented when she woke up, the way the others were. They use a powerful drug to knock their subjects out, but she didn't seem disoriented. If she was hungover, and she must have been that too, she didn't complain of it. She didn't scream for help, as Carrie Dressler did almost at once. Must have made his headache that much worse, Roddy thinks. And as Jorge Castro had eventually. And of course she has refused to eat, although it's been almost three days now, and over two since she finished off the last of the water she's been allowed. I found it really interesting here that M refers to their people, their kidnapped fees, I guess, as it. Roddy just referred to them as subjects. So training, testing, what are we doing here? The liver M brought down yesterday has darkened and begun to smell. It's still edible, but won't be for much longer. Another few hours and she'd probably vomit it back up, which would make the whole thing pointless. Meanwhile, time is flicking past. So the liver is instrumental in part of their plot. I just, I don't fully understand what it is. If you don't eat, my dear, you'll starve, he says in a mild voice his students of yore wouldn't recognize. As a lecturer, Roddy had a tendency to be rapid, excitable, sometimes even shrill. When talking about the wonders of the stomach, serosa, pylorus, duodenum, his voice sometimes rose to a near scream. Your body has already begun to digest itself. It's visible on your face, your arms, the way you stand, slightly slumped. Nothing. Her eyes on his. She hasn't asked what they want, which is also perplexing and, admit the truth, rather disturbing. She knows who they are. She knows that if they let her go, they will be arrested for kidnapping, only the first charge of many. Ergo, they can't let her go. But there has been no bargaining and no begging just this hunger strike. She told M she would gladly eat a salad, but that is out of the question. Salads, whether dressed or undressed, are not sacrament. Meat is sacrament. Liver is sacrament. At this point, I, I thought it was really interesting that Rodney Harris can also acknowledge his own weakness in his point of view of the scenario. Um, the victim may know that her death would be more hassle than negotiating. She knows she's not getting out of here. Uh, so she's just kind of doing her own thing. Um, also, sacrament, calling meat and liver sacrament. Is there a religious motive? Is this a eugenics thing, like a, a racial cleansing? What is going on? What are we to do with you, dear? Sadly. At this point, he would expect a prisoner, a normal prisoner, to say something ridiculous like, let me go, and I won't say a word to anybody. 
This girl, hungry and thirsty or not, knows better. Okay, so now we've gone from subject to prisoner, and those definitely have different connotations attached to them. Um, still not victims, though. He refuses to acknowledge that they are victims of these crimes. Um, do they think they're doing something good and helpful? Roddy pushes the plate with the slab of liver on it a little closer. Eat that and you'll feel your strength return at once. The feeling will be extraordinary. He tries a thin joke. We'll turn you into a carnivore in no time. There's still no response, so he starts for the stairs. Ellen says, I know what that is. He turns back. She is pointing to the big yellow box at the far end of the workshop. It's a wood chipper. You've got it turned to the wall so I can't see the intake, but I know what it is. My uncle has worked in the woods up north all his life. At his age, Rodney Harris would have thought himself beyond surprise, but this young woman is full of them. Most extraordinary, almost like discovering a canine prodigy that can count. And they're back to being animals in cages. Also, kudos to uh, Ellen here for acknowledging what that big yellow mystery item was in the workshop, the wood chipper. I do wonder if that's playing a role in disposal of the victims. And of course, with the narcissism, he thinks he's beyond surprise at this point. Ugh. It's how you'll get rid of me, isn't it? I'll go through the hose and into a big bag, and the bag will go in the lake. He stares, mouth agape. How do you... Why would you think that? Because it's the safest place. There's a TV show, Dexter, about a man who kills people and gets rid of them in the Gulf of Mexico. Maybe you've seen it. They have seen it, of course. This is terrible. Like she's reading his mind. Their mind. Because when it comes to their captives and the sacraments, he and M think alike. You have a boat, don't you, Professor Harris? This girl was a mistake. She's a sport, an outlier. They might not have come across another like her in a hundred years. He goes upstairs without saying anything else. Now, I do think Roddy here made a pretty, pretty big error by starting his sentence with how do you before he then asked, why would you think that? He is basically acknowledge, acknowledged that she was 100% correct. He was going to ask, how do you know that? A lot of that interaction also begs to question how long have they been doing this and how many victims total are we looking at? Chapter 5, Part 3, Page 53. M is in her study. It's crammed with so many books on the floor-to-ceiling shelves that there's barely room for her desk. Some of the books have been set aside in a corner to make room for a thick folder with writing samples printed on the cover in neat block letters. Two framed pictures flank her desktop computer. One is of a very young Roddy and M, he in a morning suit, rented, and she in the traditional white bridal dress purchased by her parents. The other shows a much older Roddy and M, he in a joke admiral's hat and she with a common sailor's Dixie cup cocked rakishly on her beauty shop curls. That's another one I had to look up. Rakishly means uh, relaxed and confident, both of which seem to be very appropriate for current age Emily Harris. They are standing in front of their newly purchased but gently used main ship 34. M has a bottle of cheap champagne in one hand, which she will soon use to christen their boat, the Marie Cather. Marie as in Stopes, Cather as in Willa. 
Willa Cather is a lesbian author, and Marie Stopes is a eugenics-supporting author. Why name the boat after something that they consider so vile? They obviously have issues with homosexuals, so the Willa Cather I really don't understand. The Marie Stopes I do. I have wondered about eugenics for these people before. Their marriage has always been a partnership. On the screen of her computer, Em's watching Ellen Kraslow sitting on the futon in her cage, legs crossed, head in hands, shoulders shaking. Roddy bends over Em's shoulder for a closer look. She stood there until you were gone, then just collapsed, Em says, not without satisfaction. The girl raises her head and looks up at the camera. Although she's been crying, her eyes look dry. Roddy isn't surprised. It's dehydration at work. You heard everything, he asks his wife. Yes, she's intuited a lot, hasn't she? Not intuition, logic. Plus, she recognized the wood chipper. Neither of the others did. What are we going to do, Emmy? Suggestions, please. She considers it while they look at a girl in the cage. Neither of them feel pity for Ellen or even sympathy. She is a problem to be solved. In a way, Roddy thinks the problem is a good thing. They are still relatively new to this. Every solved problem adds to efficiency, as every scientist knows. Anything but human. They will describe these people as anything but people. At last, she says, let's see what happens tomorrow. Yes, I think that's right. He straightens up and idly thumbs the thick folder of writing samples. This spring semester's writer-in-residence at Bell's greatly respected, almost legendary fiction workshop will be a woman named Althea Gibson, author of two novels that reviewed well and sold poorly. As with several previous in-residence authors, Gibson has been more than willing to have Emily Harris do the initial applicant winnowing, and although the pay is a pittance, Em enjoys the work. This was an offer Jorge Castro declined, preferring to go through the stacks of writing samples himself. Thought having Emily do the pre-screening was beneath him. M has noticed how many fags are uppity and thinks it's probably compensation. Also, all that solitary running. More homophobic slurs. For those of you that don't know, the term faggot is often hurled at members of the gay community. Uh, and the history behind it is that is what it, they called the bundle of sticks that they used to burn gay people alive at the stake. I do wonder if Envy is playing a role with Jorge Castro. She keeps talking about the running. She probably can't with her sciatica anymore. Anything good in here? Roddy Harris asks. So far, just the usual junk. M sighs and rubs at her aching lower back. I'm beginning to think that in another 20 years, fiction will be a lost art. He bends and kisses her white hair. Hang in there, baby. Chapter 5, Part 4, Page 54. When M comes down the stairs at noon on the 24th, the maggots and flies are back on the slab of liver. She looks at them crawling around on a perfectly good cut of meat, well it was, with disgust and dismay. They simply have no business being there so fast. They have no business being there at all. Here I think M is starting to get concerned because their supposed impenetrable fortress has maggots and flies out of nowhere. She's afraid of weakness, on her part. She pushes the meat towards the pass-through with the broom, and although Ellen looks exhausted, the cracks in her lips bleeding, her complexion the color of clay, she again blocks the hinged panel with her foot. 
M takes a bottle of water from her apron pocket and is delighted by the way the girl's eyes fix on it. And when her tongue comes out in a useless effort to moisten those parched lips, that is also delightful. Take it, Ellen. Brush off the bugs and eat. Then I'll give you the water. For one moment, she thinks the stubborn girl means to give in. Then she says what she always says. I'm a vegan. You're a bitch is what you are. Emily can barely restrain herself from saying it. The girl is infuriating, and it doesn't help that the goddamn sciatica has kept her up half the night. An uppity, smartass, bitch, black bitch. She drops to one knee, back straight, less pain, and picks up the plate. She's unable to suppress a small cry of disgust when a maggot squirms onto her wrist. She carries the plate upstairs without looking back. Roddy is at the kitchen table, reading a monograph and nibbling trail mix from a cut glass bowl. He looks up, takes off his reading glasses, and massages the sides of his nose. No? No. All right. Do you want me to take her the last piece? I can see how much your back hurts. I'm fine. Good to go. M tilts the plate. The rotting liver slides into the sink. It makes a squashy sound. Plud. There's another maggot on her forearm. She swats it off and uses a meat fork to stuff the spoiled meat into the garbage disposal, going at it with short, hard jabs. Calmly, Roddy says. Calmly, M. We are prepared for this. But if she won't eat it, it means going out again for a replacement, and it's too soon. We'll be extremely careful, and I can't bear to see you in such misery. Besides, I might have a possibility. M turns to him. She exasperates me. So now I'm wondering if all of these, you know, deceased kidnappees, have they failed to meet the end goal? Is that why they're dying? Um, and obviously they are very carefully planning all of this. It appears that they have everything down to a T. She knows that two disappearances too close together would raise suspicion. Nothing so mild as exasperation, my dear one, Roddy thinks. You are angry, and I think the girl knows it. She may also know your anger is the only vengeance she can ever expect to have. He says none of that, only looks at her with those eyes she has always loved. Is helpless not to love, even after all these years. He gets up, puts an arm around her shoulders, and kisses her cheek. My poor Em, I'm sorry you're in pain, and sorry you have to wait. She gives him the smile he has always loved, is helpless not to love. Even now, with the deepening lines around her eyes and from the corners of her mouth, it will work out. She turns on the disposal. It makes a hungry grinding sound, not that much different from the sound the chipper in the basement makes when it's running. Then she gets a fresh slab of liver from the fridge. Are you sure you don't want me to take it down, Roddy says? Positive. Chapter 5, Part 5, Page 56. In the basement, M puts the plate of liver on the floor. She sets a bottle of Dasani water down behind it. Ellen Craslow gets up from the futon and blocks the pass-through with the side of her foot before M can take the broom. Again, she says, I'm a vegan. I think we have established that, M says. Think carefully. This is your last chance. Ellen looks at M with haunted, deep-socketed eyes, then smiles. Her lips crack open and bleed. She speaks quietly, without heat. Don't lie to me, woman. I was all out of chances when I woke up in here. Chapter 5, Part 6, Page 56 Roddy is the one who comes down the next day. He's wearing his favorite sport coat, the one he always wore at conventions and symposia where he had panels to be on or papers to deliver. He knows from the video feed that the liver is still outside the pass-through, but the plate has been moved. 
He and M watched as the girl lay on her side, shoulder pressed against the bars, trying to reach the water. She couldn't, of course. Roddy is holding the requested salad. Ordinarily, he would never tease a caged animal, but this girl really has been infuriating. It's not just her unshakable calm, it's the waste of time. No dressing. We wouldn't want to violate your dietary principles. He sets the salad bowl down, noting the naked greed on her face as she looks at it. He pushes it toward her with the broom. He could let her eat it before putting her out of her misery. He has considered it and decided against. She's made Emily angry. He pushes it into the cell. She picks it up. Thank you. Her eyes widen as she sees him reach inside the sport coat. It's a 38. Not much noise, and the basement is soundproofed. He shoots her once in the chest. The bowl falls from her hands and shatters. Cherry tomatoes roll here and there. As she goes down, he reaches through the bars and puts another bullet into the top of her head, just to make sure. What a waste, he says. Not to mention the mess to clean up. End of chapter five. Well, that was not how I expected that to end at all. Um, obviously, we knew that she wasn't going to get out, but I thought they would try a little bit harder to meet their mystery end goal here. Wow. I really enjoyed this chapter because getting to know the Harrises is going to help solve the crimes as they are committed, and, and trying to understand these people will be helpful in the long run. Uh, so I'm really excited to see how Stephen King ties this into the Bonnie Doll case. Uh, and Holly. Thank you so much for joining me, and please come back next week. We'll dive right into chapter six. Uh, as always, if there's anything I can do better, please drop a line. Let me know what's working, what's not working, and what you as the listener would like to see. I will see you all next week. Remember, it's all just a bunch of hocus pocus, and don't forget to like and subscribe.